0: How many are here tonight that were not here last week? Can I see by hands? <laughs> okay? Welcome to you. <laughs> These two weeks, the Dharma talks are actually um, go together, and I'll be, of course, reviewing some. But the topic or theme that we've been exploring is what's called wise aspiration. And it goes to that basic question of what do you really want? You know, what really, really matters? Um, there is something called the Bodhisattva vow or the vow of awakening. And really, it's been found that a universal is that we all deep down want to be fully who we can be, alive, awake, loving fully, living fully. So there are really two parts to this aspiration that's called the bodhisattva's vow, one being that whatever happens in our life serve that awakening, that everything serves to awaken compassion, to awaken our heart and mind. And the other part of the aspiration is that this may benefit all beings. There's this sense that we're not in it alone. It's interesting though, when we first ask ourselves that question, so what do you want? it's not always that evident. I mean, our wants are kind of stacked. Right at this moment, I will, might want a good night's sleep, you know, or a nice massage, or... Um, let me read you D.H. Lawrence. We are not free when doing just what we like. We are only free when doing what the deepest self likes. And there is getting down to the deepest self. It takes some diving. So you understand. it that we can ask that question, well, what is your heart's longing? But it's really not till we get still that we're actually let, you know, they say there's water and there's sediment all stirred around and it's gonna be murky. And part of this practice of meditation is pausing long enough to let the settling go on. So we really have some clarity. What is it we really do want? This is from the aboriginal Indians. The great spirit dreams us and all of material reality into existence. Through our own personal intent, we can join the great spirit in co-dreaming. In fact, we're already doing it. The trick is to become aware that we're doing it. So, very basic to this path is becoming aware of our aspiration. And what we find is the more we touch moments of freedom, I mean, the more we sit and get a little quiet and sense that who we are is bigger than this kind of self organized around it wants, its wants and needs. We begin to touch into a sense of being connected with each other and an openness and an open heartedness. As we do that, the longing to live that fully becomes more strong. And as we become aware of that longing, we actually then connect more deeply with what's true. So there's a kind of circularity in the process. So as I've mentioned, there is both a receptive and an active kind of facet to the aspiration of the path. Receptive, may whatever arises really touch this heart and mind that the most difficult parts of our life be recognized as part of the path and as central to the path, as the grounds of Bodhi, of awakening, the messy stuff, the disappointments. The parts of our life that we wish we could get rid of so that we could then sit and be spiritual are the very places where we can actually learn more fully who we are and how to be free. That's the receptive part. And then the active part. Really offering our care, our love. Now, a lot of meditation practice is learning this quality of receptivity, of not fighting. And we spend most of the time when we talk about our training and awareness, how do we stay here? How do we not react? How do we be with difficult emotions and difficult sensations, and actually welcome the guest. You know, how do we stop the war? That is a lot of what our training's about. Learning to concentrate some, to bring the breath, bring our mind back to the breath or to the body, so that we can be here for life, receptive. Learning to open the awareness mindfully, notice what's arising, so we can be here for life that's a large piece of our training non-reaction and then there's this inevitable question that comes up and many of you have voiced it which is well okay if we're always being so receptive and accepting and so on how do we act against injustice i mean what do we do about the terrible and awful things going on on this earth and when is it right even to have personally have boundaries you know those questions come up. So one of the big kind of explorations on this path is, how do we learn the art of responding, not reacting? For many of us, our learning comes when we watch some of the beings that are walking the earth now or recently that seem to embody it. The Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Han, Nelson Mandela, you know, beings that have themselves directly experienced the unfairness of life, physically, mentally, been put in jail, taken their homelands away from them, the whole, you know, just the worst stuff that can happen. And rather than reacting from hatred, have, in a very, very balanced way open to the experience and responded with wisdom and with love and with courage and with creativity and in ways that are actually effective and can bring transformation, not another cycle of reactivity. There's a great classic saying from the Buddhist scriptures, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. So in this first part of the Bodhisattva vow, there's a commitment to training and practicing in a way that we learn not to react, that we walk on this earth and not constantly be flinching and flailing out and be in reactive mode, rather to breathe in, to accept this moment and connect with our breath and our heart and our life. This gives the grounds for the second part of the Bodhisattva vow, that we breathe in and touch this moment. We breathe out, may we be of benefit. Now take a moment, if you will, and just reflect on this part of the vow. Just try it on. May this life be of benefit. May this life be of benefit repeating it to yourself and letting it drop into your awareness and your body and your heart in a genuine way. May this life be of benefit. Sense your experience of being as you reflect May this life be of benefit. So tonight we'll be reflecting together in different ways on how this can be real, not a idealistic kind of plan, not taking on yet another role to feel good about ourselves, there's a problem if we explore the bodhisattva vow, but we sense that this is a small self that's working against terrible odds to liberate all beings. There's a problem with that. There's a problem if we even conceive of it like, well, I'm spiritually gifted and well-endowed, so I'll nobly sacrifice for the benefit of all beings. You know, you feel the grandiosity of it, right? A problem just reinforces, a, you know, a bloated-out sense of self. Chogyam Trungpa called it spiritual materialism, and it's not the spirit of this vow. Rather, this vow comes from a deep sense of being a part of it all, so that any waking up that's going on is us all waking up. It's kind of like the sense of, ice cubes melting, that when when we start melting it helps other beings melt, but we're all just made of water and we're all melting together. Let me read you Alice Walker. This is from The Color Purple. She writes, One day when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being part of everything, not separate at all, I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens, you can't miss it. When it happens, you can't miss it. You know, it's what we all cherish the most. When in some way we kind of let down our guard or relax some and feel sometimes it's when we're in nature or with someone that's very dear just a part of it all you know or looking up at the stars and the self kind of dissolves and it's just this incredible universe we're a part of and when we do sense that kind of belonging with each other and with this earth we want to take care of the earth not because we're good samaritans but it's part of our body, do you know what I mean? We want to take care of each other, again, not because of some ethical mandate, but because we're all together in this. We belong to each other, we're part of it. So the sad thing, and it is sad for all of us, is how much we find ourselves restuck in a sense of separation that feels really real. That we have to defend ourselves. That we have to e- enlarge our sense of who we are. That we have to present ourselves to each other. That we have to cover up things. It's sad because that natural connectedness and the giving that comes out of it gets kind of covered or blanketed with this contraction and. And we feel imprisoned by it, and yet it seems very real. This is Rumi. This is how a human being can change. There is a little worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly he wakes up. Call it grace, whatever, something wakes him. And he's no longer a little worm. He's the entire vineyard and the orchard too, the fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour, rather free to serve and share and live and love. As we practice the first part of the bodhisattva aspiration, this letting life awaken us, we open more and more to our inner life. More is allowed, more is experienced. And as that happens, our circle widens. You know, just like this little worm busy eating leaves, when we begin to wake up and include parts of our being, we start including each other and this earth and this life. So we become like the vineyard. We're relating to all of life as part of our being. But as you all know, it doesn't happen in a sustained way. Call it grace or whatever, we do have a waking up and practice absolutely helps. You know that. They say that um, practice makes us uh, enlightenment prone. or ac- Oh, enlightenment is an accident and practice makes us accident prone. That's what it is it does lean us in a direction, and yet it's not sustained. The conditioning to kind of regroup back into this separate self sense happens a lot. So one of the beginning ways that we sense the possibility of opening our circle, this natural sense of wanting to be of benefit because we belong, happens when we start seeing how many people we don't include in our circle. We start recognizing how much we've created a self and other. We have a very small number of people we affiliate with. My sisters and brothers on the path, or my family, or whatever, or my team. And I, and I mean that. We, we can really affiliate with the hero in a movie or in a book and cry and be a part of that experience. <laughs> and we feel very affiliated to certain teams. It's an amazing phenomenon. I just read this. The average percentage points by which a male sports fan's testosterone level rises when his team wins, 20 percentage points. <laughs> the average points by which it falls, 20 percentage points when they lose. <laughs> Think of it. This is body chemistry. and I mean, this is affiliation in a very biochemical way. So what we find is we have these areas that it's very compelling where we feel mine, ours, we, and then we have huge, huge zones which are considered as other that maybe cognitively think of, oh, this is humanity and we're all together, but it's not in our heart when we look honestly. There's all sorts of people that, because of whether their race or their sex or their socioeconomic status or whatever, we either consider above or below are just not relatable to, just different from us. I mentioned uh, to some of you some weeks back, I read a book called Stones from the River. And uh, the main person in the book, Trudy, is a dwarf who is a German woman living in Germany during the Second World War. And so in the book, it's through her eyes and and you discover her sense of both the difference, the alienation from other people and how people treat her to create more of that and also just the common humanity. And what's amazing in a book like this is because you're spending the whole time with this one being, um, the affiliation is so strong, the sense of connectedness. And it was um, very jarring for me to realize... How unconsciously I had taken a category of people and just not even considered a sense of sameness, you know I had you know not seen a lot of dwarfs in my life, but it wasn't like I had negative thoughts, it was just other you know and how much I do that and we do that in an unconscious way is is kind of startling, so a huge part of the path is is this intentional paying attention to those that we might unconsciously keep in another category so that we can keep including in our circle more and more beings because as long as there's any real ism, as long as there's any real exclusion we're not whole, we're not wholly awake and we're not free. So in the Tibetan path there's trainings that to actually look at whoever's around and consider them as your mother or as everybody in in some incarnation was your mother or a relative and i've told a number of you that some years ago i started doing that but more just sensing oh this is my friend no matter who people i barely knew people i knew very well people that you know are famous in the newspaper people that are I'm considered horrible. In some, some way I just say, this is my friend, this is my friend. And I still do it. And it's a very profound practice because sometimes it, there's a lot of aversion or resistance and yet if I really reflect, I can sense humanity, the, the vulnerability, the realness of a being. And there's some bond that's forged just because I've paid attention long enough. Which is the truth when we really pay attention to another being, really pay attention, we'll see what's true. Which is that being has places of fear and hurting and suffering, and that being has goodness, wants to love and be loved, and then all sorts of conditioning to act out weirdly <laughs> in the midst of it, you know. And either we're going to live in reactivity, our conditioning reacting to their conditioning. Are we going to train our eyes to see so that we can respond and not react? Let's do a little reflection, if you will, just to uh, sit up and take a few deep breaths. And to consider today and if you didn't see many people or talk to many people today, the last few days, who you've talked with, who you've seen, who you've been with. And as you do so, imagine yourself as the center of concentric circles so that the beings that are close, very closely affiliated, are in your circle or close in. And those that you don't feel much affiliation with or further out in more distant orbits. And take some moments to reflect on a handful of people, acquaintances or not, close or not, and how you relate to them. Are they kindred spirits? Is there a sense of here we are, in this together? Is there more distance? Is there a mechanical kind of politeness? this is a reflection you can continue on your own but for now choose someone who you might sense is in a orbit that's not so close in that's that you don't relate to naturally in a close way that you feel a difference some it's in some way an alien or an, an other maybe boring maybe just not your type And let your attention rest on this person for a bit. Even if you don't know much about this person, take a moment to sense their presence. Sense their body, the way they hold themselves, the way they look, what it might be like to be in that body, to be looking through those eyes. imagine and sense what the vulnerability is that this being's fears, unmet longings, embarrassments, hurts. Try to imagine and sense just by paying attention to what might be For some, it helps to imagine this being as much younger so you can see their vulnerability more clearly. And then sensing also this being's natural goodness, that this being too longs to be cared about to be happy, what can you appreciate? Even if you sense keeping a distance or boundary, let your heart be close, sensing the natural goodness of this being. Giving the gift of your attention and seeing what opens. And then take a few full breaths and please come back, open your eyes. Okay, would anyone like to share what you noticed, what was challenging, what was helpful? So you chose one person in particular that was a little bit distant, not not close to at first. As you reflected, you did cho- you chose someone. Okay, so you chose someone where you had a bond, but it wasn't necessarily a real healthy bond. Ah, right? uh, so this is interesting. One way of, if you're sensing these circles, what is really what draws us together, and does it draw us together in a deep way or in a way that's, you know there's an attempt to connect but it's kind of on real fragile grounds not so healthy and that's a good observation to if there's not an answer as much as to keep exploring and ask yourself the question what would bring this to a more healthy or satisfying level or if it matters to you, you know, what you might do in that direction so thank you. Anything else? Anyone else notice? so the very way that a person protects their vulnerability made it hard to see their vulnerability which is so true isn't it that the pe- the people that probably most need our compassion are so well defended we don't even we can't really see the very thing we need to see to soften our hearts which can be actually motivation to look more deeply because we all have armor and it's a sad thing, but sometimes the people that have been hurt the most deeply have the most well-defended soft spot. And yet, that's the place that where our training can actually be very transforming. So it's really a good thing that you notice that, just how hard that is. Yeah, Others? This is an interesting one also because you picked something challenging. The, the most challenging is that with parents. Um, that to begin to sense if you went inside that person their vulnerability and if, it, if in sensing that it triggers off your fear of being like them that can make it like, ooh, I don't want to feel that. I don't want to go near that. And so that's another thing that's really very, very profound to look at how much we push away people because their vulnerability makes us uncomfortable. That in some way it's either going to snag us in or we're going to be like that or we already are like that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I missed what came out of it was a better awareness that what? Could you hear, Phyllis? That that there was, in becoming aware of vulnerability, more forgiveness, but that each time she does it, it goes deeper and deeper, which I'm also glad to have shared here because this little reflection, as you can tell from just what you've heard, it's not like all of a sudden, ah, I see their spiritual glory and I see their vulnerability and embracing, embracing, embracing. It doesn't happen all at once. More, what we start sensing is the different layers of what's difficult and how hard it is to really look and see and open. Which is fine, to be quite compassionate and patient about that. The beauty of the process is that the very act of beginning to pay attention starts melting the ice. It starts exposing our own fears and it starts getting us closer and closer to the place where we can really open to each other in a true way. This is a story from the Special Olympics called, Who Won? I saw a beautiful example of kindness in 1968 1968 during the Special Olympics track and field meet. One participant was Kim Peek, a brain-damaged, severely handicapped boy racing in the 50-yard dash. Kim was racing against two other athletes with cerebral palsy. They were in wheelchairs. Kim was the lone runner. As the gun sounded, Kim moved quickly ahead of the other two. Twenty yards ahead and ten yards from the finish line, he turned to see how the others were coming. The girl had turned her wheelchair around and was stuck against the wall. The other boy was pushing his wheelchair backward with his feet. Kim stopped, went back, and pushed the little girl across the finish line. The boy in the wheelchair going backward run the race. The girl took second. Kim lost. Or did he? The crowd that gave Kim a standing ovation didn't think so. When it becomes really clear to us that everyone is struggling hard, that everyone's having a hard time, it becomes natural to be kind. The illusion we're in is that some people are just plain mean, that people are just out to get us, that we're too fragile and can't handle giving some. So part of our path and our training is both to look and see what's truly there in others and to simply practice giving as much as we can. That doesn't mean giving unwisely. There's something called idiot compassion, which is the enabler's compassion. You know, we're just kind of handouts. This isn't about that. This is about giving the benefit of the doubt that someone, deep down, wants to love and be loved giving kind words, giving care in the best way that we can. The Pali word for this, this kind of generosity of the heart, is dana. You've heard the word in here, and specifically to do with donations in class, but it's got a much broader kind of meaning. In fact, the Buddha, after his enlightenment experience, one of the very first teachings he gave on how to live in a way that will help to wake us up to who we are. Talked about Donna, about this practice of generosity, that we look and see what beings need and who they are, and that our natural response is giving. And it's not the ethic of just being nice and giving money or something. Rather, it's a real giving of the heart because we care. A giving of ourselves. There's a saying that if you stop to be kind, you must swerve often from your path. And in this, the word path really means our conditioning. That we're all on this kind of track, and we can see it day in and day out, that we're kind of rushing to the finish line and trying to get things done, and very concerned about me. Our world is very absorbed with ourself and this is the path or track we're on. And the path of freedom and meditation is to learn to pause and drop a little and look around and include in our circle. Not to say, I don't matter, but we all matter. And to bring that the quality of tenderness and concern and giving to all beings. The beauty of it is that in giving, we open back to that place in us which naturally has an overflowing quality that naturally does care. Even when we give and we're not feeling it at the moment, the giving can reconnect us. It's a very profound practice. Let me ask you again to reflect, if you will. Just take a moment to close your eyes. And this time to reflect on an instance of generosity. It could be at any point in your life, but some moment or time where that you gave an act of kindness and it could be in the form of a prayer or giving someone your time or your energy or money. But in some way giving, helping And just review and reflect on that event. Notice what your sense of your own being is like in the midst of this. Okay. Again, to check in with you. And I know it's not so easy to speak in a large group, but if anybody would be willing to share um, what yours was and and what it was like to reflect on it. Um, The floor is open. Anyone? So, in this one, um, offering a day at a homeless shelter and, and feeling the humility of how small a gift it is. How m- sometimes we think we're going to feel good about ourselves and we've got this idea about what giving is, and then it can actually be humbling to, se- to sense, you know, there's so much need and there's just limited amounts we can sometimes put out. That's very real. Thank you. who else
1: please mm. could
0: you all hear um just the the pleasure in your own birthday of giving to someone else to a disabled woman a half of your day beautiful yeah please So in this, giving to someone who's depressed, but finding in that process, discovering their strength. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah.
1: hmm Yeah.
0: yeah. hmm It's relevant to a lot of people. It's an ongoing experiment, isn't it? So this is on the nourishing, wonderful quality of giving when it comes in an organic, natural way, and how difficult it is if there's a part of us that's reacting. And then the question is, if that's going on, what's the wisest way to deal with that situation? Um, Because, again, this isn't... um, a precept like, thou shalt give, and that will heal you. I mean, there are times that it's absolutely inappropriate. It would mean we couldn't continue with our own inner coming to peace or terms with what's going on. I find for myself, if there's a strong reactivity, the first place I have to give to usually is my own heart. I have to give a kind of a space and an allowing and a forgiving to my own reactivity and give some attention and time, just to be connected again. If, I'm, if I can pause enough to really feel the fullness of what's going on in me, there's more space in a natural way for another being. But if I try to skip over that too quickly, I'd be very resentful of giving out prematurely. So I can understand what you're saying. Um, so thank you for your sharing. Yeah. Anyone else that wanted to... Yeah, please. So, discovering when it, this is about giving money to organizations, the, the deepest motivation was really to be free, to break out of a smallness and let go some, which is in that way, it makes the dana or the generosity a very um, healing practice. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Hmm. Put your hand up if you did not hear that. Oh, there were a few. Her husband went to Cuba to help down there, and they were you know very incredibly dire circumstances, short of medicine, no not even a loaf of bread sometimes, but it was one woman's birthday and one man drove the whole day and went to all sorts of extremes so that she could have a birthday cake on her birthday rode a bicycle six miles. Thank you, beautiful. We could go on a d- you know, in a way, it'd be lovely to spend the evening, just spend some more time on these, because, you know, the Buddha described a very wholesome kind of pride. And this is the, the pride that comes from that nourishing feeling when we're in that flow of giving and receiving and giving and receiving. It's not a pride like, oh, I'm a great person, as much as just the happiness to be part of that flow. And with it comes a bit of humility, as Leslie described, that it's, it's not a self, and it's not, we don't have unlimited capacities. And to begin to see that and just accept the amount that's possible. Um, and with that comes some peace and some real happiness. Albert Schweitzer, the ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. So this, this generosity brings joy. And one of the things that I know happens when that question comes out, well, think about a time that you did something kind, is always a certain percentage of us are thinking, I can't, I, I didn't. Even if that looked kind, I, I know my motive for that one. And do you know what I mean? I mean, we do that. So if you were one of those people, that's a conditioning too, to kind of write off or discount because each of us has a heart that cares and each of us at different times is either through our prayer or time or energy or a kind word reached out to others, actually many times. So this practice of Dana, of generosity, we do it when our heart is naturally overflowing, we do it when we can lean in that direction without violating ourselves in some way, as we just talked about. I was out at Spirit Rock at the retreat center there um some weeks ago and it's amazing because Spirit Rock is the creation that has come out of many many people's generosity both in money and as well as hard work. The the pictures are there over there on the table if you haven't seen it. It's a beautiful retreat center and one of their in one of their fundraisings they created what's called the Sangha of a Thousand Buddhas and they asked Uh, for a thousand people to each give a thousand dollars and that was one of the big fundraisers but they did many others where people could either give their work or their money or whatever and out of it has come this center that now over the years thousands and thousands of people will be able to come and for fairly inexpensive rates uh, get these teachings that are so priceless, and this has been the tradition in Asia for thousands of years that um, that this generosity of both giving the teachings, the generosity of the culture or society that so appreciates them and then gives back in some way through work or through money is what has allowed um, it to continue and so in the West, as i've mentioned a number of times here the Buddhist teachers have wanted to continue with this particular expression of dana, of generosity, where um, we don't charge for classes for the most part. And when you come to retreats, the charge is just for uh, the room and the board. And again, it's in the same spirit that I'm talking tonight, that it becomes a practice, that rather than, as in the West, turning this money exchange, which has so much like, greed about well how much is being charged or our fear or defensiveness, that even in our exchange of teaching and learning we can practice this most basic kind of expression of the heart where we practice Dana or generosity. And we'll be more and more as we go here in Washington trying to, as we expand this local community, the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, um, it'll be on that same basis, that out of a love or appreciation for teachings, for what we see as beautiful, we'll all be giving what we can in different ways to create whatever's possible, perhaps even um, something like a spirit rock, but in our own style. We'll see. I talk about the Dhana in a very specific way tonight because so often it's compartmentalized, and we think of, well, there's the Dharma and the teachings and the practice, and then there's the Adhana basket over there, or there's donations to IMCW. Um, And one of the beautiful things about Asia is it's all woven together so that it's part of the practice. So that when we, we give it, when we go to retreats, and we actually meditate on giving dawn at retreats, there's a real sense that that meditation's another part of the cultivation of a generous heart. And people sometimes say, well, how much is appropriate? You know, that came up at the retreat a lot. And I know for myself, because this really is one of my practices, I sit at a lot of retreats, that, um, I try to give in a way where I actually, each time I'm giving, I feel a sense of generosity in the giving, like I'm giving of myself, and yet it's practical. I'm not going to bankrupt myself either. And it's something to wor- worth considering in that way. When the Buddha taught the precepts, which I went over three weeks ago or so, of reverence for life, this heart of generosity is the grounds of it, this reverence for life, this being able to look and see what's beautiful and out of appreciation and care, giving of ourselves, giving of ourselves in our words and our actions with each other, with this earth. This is a quote I read a few weeks ago that I think is really wonderful in how we relate to it. Jack Hornfield writes that at first these precepts, this reverence, this generosity, is a practice. Then it becomes a necessity, and finally it becomes a joy. And that is the experience of generosity, of care, of giving, of kind acts, that they actually end up being an absolute joy because they connect us with who we really are. That's the bottom line. It's who we are to be generous to care, to respond kindly. And it's true that we all have the conditioning to be defensive and hold back and withhold and withdraw. We all have that. So our path is to begin to see. Who are we recreating as other in our life right now? Who are we locked in reactivity with? Where are the places that for the freedom of our own hearts we can look more closely. We can see the suffering. We can see the beauty. And we can respond with the freedom of our hearts, which is in a loving and in a caring way. One of the West Coast teachers' name is Angelus Arian, and she's created what's called a Blessing Way, which is just a daily practice that's um, kind of summarizes, I think, what we've been talking about tonight quite beautifully. It has three parts. She says, Always begin each day by praying or setting a sacred intention for that day. So we set our aspiration, not even beginning our day. We begin any sitting. I know for me, um, before I begin a psychotherapy session, same thing. Sometimes before I even talk to my son I'll in some way establish an intention. It's a way to come to touch what we really cherish. May this be part of awakening. May this be of benefit. That's part one, to set our intention. Part two, to give gratitude. To sense what we appreciate, to sense the beauty, to sense the vulnerability, to give gratitude, to express it. And then the third, she writes, take a life-affirming action each day, which includes anonymous acts of kindness. It sounds a little formalistic, and yet there's a beautiful thing about having that intention each day that anyone that you're with, in some way to have a moment of truth, or in any way possible to act in a way that'll relieve suffering, that'll touch someone, that'll heal them. So we'll end on that note, just sitting for a few minutes together. As you sit, connecting with what's true for you in this moment, So that as you breathe in and as you sense some presence, you can let this be acknowledged, received, what's true right now. Breathing in and feeling your heart, your body. So that as you breathe out, you can respond with care, offering space, Breathing in and feeling what's true. You can be tired, restless, happy, sad, spaced out, alert, breathing out, offering your care, your gratitude, offering space to what is. Sensing someone that you care about, that you'd like to bow to as one of your circle. Breathing in and sensing them. Just who they are, what matters to them. Their tenderness, their loving hearts, so that as you breathe out, you can offer your blessing. of benefit. Taking some more moments to bring to mind whoever you'd like to include in your circle, in your awareness, bring attention to. Feeling who they are, what's difficult for them, what would make them happy. Offering your prayer, letting your heart be of benefit. Rilke writes, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not ever complete the last one, but I give myself to it. The mantra, ah, the mantra of heart and connectedness will chant together until the bell rings so that when you exhale and chant it, just When you finish, breathe in and begin chanting again. Please inhale deeply. Ah. practice. May all beings awaken and be free.